Dear friends, please remain standing, and as we prepare to hear God's Word read, let's seek the Lord's blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, we once again give you thanks and praise for your Word, your infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word, which is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We ask that by your Spirit you would indeed be present in the reading and preaching of your Word. And we ask, Lord God, that you would give us open minds and open hearts to receive the word as seed into the soil of our souls. We pray that by your spirit, your word would bear much spiritual fruit in our hearts and lives. Once again, Lord, we ask that you would set a guard over my lips, that I, thine unworthy servant, may speak only that which is faithful to your word and edifying to your people and glorifying to your name. We pray these things through Christ our Lord and all of God's people said. Amen. This evening, we consider once again 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 25, the second part of uh, this sermon, the imperishable word of God, part two. Let's hear God's holy word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. There are three key words that the children can be listening for this evening. The words word, imperishable, living, and abiding. Well, dear ones, on this Lord's Day evening, we continue our consideration of this passage from 1 Peter. This is a passage where, uh, in which the Word of God, as we read in verse 23, meaning the Word or message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that Word of the Gospel which is recorded for us in the written Word of God, that this Word here in verse 23 is described as imperishable and as living. The Word of God, the Word of the Gospel, it is indeed abiding, incorruptible, and imperishable, Because it is the word of the imperishable, incorruptible, everlasting, eternal triune God, the great self-existing I Am. And it is living because it is a life-giving instrument or means of grace through which the Holy Spirit imparts new life into the souls of sinners like me and you, raising them from the deadness and darkness of their sins into newness of life, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, in our passage for this Lord's Day evening, Peter exhorts his readers, as the Holy Spirit through Peter exhorts all of God's people, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, as we read in verse 22. Now, you may recall that in the preceding section of this letter, Peter had called his readers as obedient children, as they're called in verse 14. He had called his readers, to holiness. 
And he had called them to holiness even in the midst of a hostile world which rejects our holy God and which persecutes his people. And even though his readers faced the prospect of severe persecution for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter urges them, he urges them not to be conformed to the sinful passions of their former pagan ignorance. But instead, he calls them to be holy in all of their conduct, even as their God is himself holy. And so again, in, this, in the previous section of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter had called uh, his readers to holiness, to uh, sanctified behavior and conduct. But here in this section, he calls these believers, as the Spirit through Peter calls us, to exhibit sincere brotherly love to one another. As it says in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. I believe that Peter there is referring to their conversion to Christ, their effectual calling unto faith and repentance through the gospel. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, he exhorts them then, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And they're able to do this. Why? Well, he explains in verse 23, since you have been born again. That's why their hearts have been purified. They've been regenerated. They've been born again by the word and spirit of God. And they've been born again, as it says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, in verse 21, Peter emphasizes, just to put this a little bit in its context, in verse 21, Peter emphasizes that it is through Christ that his readers had become believers in God with a saving faith. Let me start in verse 20. Speaking of Christ, Peter says, He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God. In other words, faith comes from Him. Faith is a gift of God given to us through Christ You are through him, believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This faith, this faith through which we pursue both purity and love, this is made possible by virtue of God's grace and through the gift of the new birth, and not at all through our own works or our own merits, as Peter makes very clear in our passage for this evening, especially in verses 22 and 23. (coughs) Excuse me. And how is it that this sovereign gift of the new birth has been bestowed? In the mystery of God's special providence, it is, as Peter writes, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, or some versions read incorruptible, through the living and abiding word of God. Now, on the last Lord's Day, just by way of uh, a very quick review, on the last Lord's Day evening, we considered the centrality of God's Word and God's Spirit to the life of the church. We also considered the Word of God as a means of grace, and we considered some of the implications of these truths. This evening, we return to uh, this passage, and, uh, and we go on to consider what we learn from this passage about some of the qualities of God's Word, and that's what we'll focus on this evening. And the first quality I would have you to notice, beloved, notice in verse 23 
that the word of God is described as being imperishable. The word of God is imperishable. Again, Peter writes, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, what is this imperishable seed that he is speaking of? Well, again, in the context, it seems clear that Peter is here describing the word of God as an incorruptible or imperishable seed. Based on Peter's citation of a passage from the book of the prophet Isaiah in verses uh, 24 and the first part of verse 25, uh, based on Peter's citation of Isaiah, it's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, we conclude that Peter is contrasting the incorruptible and imperishable word of God with perishable man. Perishable man who eventually withers like grass and falls away like a flower. Withers and falls away in the sense of physically dying. As it says in verse 24, as Peter is quoting from this passage in Isaiah, For all flesh is like grass. Grass grows up quickly, but then it can quickly fade away and uh, die. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails or falls. But in contrast to that, the word of the Lord remains forever. The point is plain, beloved. Man, like the grass, grows up but soon perishes in physical death. Life is short, but the Word of God never perishes. It is incorruptible. It is imperishable. As it says at the beginning of verse 25, the Word of the Lord remains how long? Forever. The Word of the Lord remains forever. And because the Word of the Lord is imperishable, it has an enduring quality about it. In fact, it is so incorruptible, it can never be destroyed. And this is important. We live in a hyper-skeptical age and a hyper-cynical age, uh, an age where many look upon the Bible and they sneer and they say, oh, that's an irrelevant book. Uh, and it's been disproven so many times, allegedly. Dear ones, think about how viciously and at times, how violently the Word of God has been attacked by unbelievers and heretics down through the ages. Time and time again, godless men have mocked at and reviled and ridiculed and even tried to destroy the Word of God from off the face of the earth. But time and time again, the Word of God has proven itself to be indestructible, imperishable. Many infidels have themselves perished in their attempts to rid the world of God's word. But even at times when this precious volume has been collected and burned by wicked men, it has always managed once again to, to appear from the ash heaps as if to mock its would-be destroyers. God's word has always and will always be victorious. Why? Because it is the word of God and God himself as the eternal self-existent one, the transcendent one, the creator of heaven and earth. God himself is indestructible. Thus, his word, too, is indestructible. 
While I don't agree with his evidentialist approach to apologetics, the popular apologist Josh McDowell offers the following helpful and instructive quotation in his book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he quotes, and I'm just going to quote uh, Mr. McDowell, he quotes another author. He says, H.L. Hastings, cited by John W. Lee, has forcibly illustrated the unique way the Bible has withstood the attacks of infidelity and skepticism. Quote, infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die, and the book still lives. And the book still lives because it is the imperishable, abiding word of God. Beloved in Christ, let us never forget that when we hold a Bible in our hands... We are holding in our hands a copy of the indestructible, incorruptible, imperishable Word of God. And let us make sure that this imperishable Word doesn't remain on our shelves collecting dust. Let us take it off the shelf. Let us take up and read. Let us meditate upon it. Let us imbibe it. Let us fill our souls with it, for it is the imperishable Word of God. And so the Word of God, and especially the Word as it reveals the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, is imperishable. But did you notice the other qualities that are mentioned in verse 23? Not only is it described as imperishable, the Word of God is also described as living and abiding. And this is the second main point in your sermon outline. Dear friends, the Word of God is living and abiding. Again, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through what? Through the living and abiding word of God. Now, friends, obviously the Apostle Peter is not intending for us to understand this statement in some kind of, some kind of woodenly literal or overly literalistic sense, as if somehow the Holy Bible that you hold in your hands is a living entity with flesh and blood and brain waves and so forth. Rather, what Peter is intending to communicate with this language is that the Word of God is living because it is the Word of the living God. It originates from the living God, and also because the living and true God uses this Word to bring spiritual and eternal life to His people. A very fundamental and basic Bible teaching is that the God who is revealed in the Word he is not a dead or lifeless idol. 
invented and set up by the whims of and vain imaginations of mere men, like the so-called gods and idols which Peter's Gentile readers had formerly worshipped before their conversion to Christ. Remember, Peter is writing to uh, Christians who, many of whom had been converted to Christ from a background of pagan idolatry. The true and living God is not like the idols that they had previously worshipped before their conversion to Christ. On the contrary, the word of the God of the Bible is not a dead or lifeless word. It is a living and abiding word. And therefore, it accomplishes all that which God intends for it to accomplish, including the sovereignly bestowed grace through the Holy Spirit of bringing new life to spiritually dead sinners whom he has chosen to receive the wonderful gift of salvation. And here once again, I sort of touched upon this on the last Lord's Day, but here once again, brothers and sisters, isn't it amazing that the Almighty God chooses to use seemingly common and ordinary things like the written word and the preached word, the spoken word, like the waters of baptism and the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. He chooses to use these ordinary common elements to communicate and confirm his extraordinary grace to us. He uses these things, he uses the word to create faith as the word is blessed by the Spirit and applied by the Spirit. He uses that word to create saving faith within the hearts of God's elect. And then he uses uh, the preached word and the sacraments as well to build up his people in their most precious faith. God chooses to use rather unspectacular and ordinary events such as the reading and preaching of God's word and the administration and receiving of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He uses these things to display, to signify, and through the Spirit to communicate His supernatural saving and sanctifying grace to sinners like me and like you. That's one of the things that makes our God so amazing. He's able to do this with such weak and ordinary things. But it should not at all surprise us that God would choose to use these ordinary things to create and strengthen saving faith within the hearts of his people. After all, we learn in the scriptures that God often chooses to use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. The worldly-minded skeptic, uh, as well as, ironically, the spiritually immature believer, Both expect God to come down and prove himself before the judgment bar of puny men with a dazzling display of signs and wonders that are far beyond the dazzling special effects that could be produced by modern technology. Now, right then and there, some might pause and say, wait a minute, Pastor. Hasn't God at times indeed displayed miraculous signs and wonders and miracles? Well, he certainly has, and we don't deny that. Certainly, there have been significant periods in redemptive history when God has, in fact, dazzled His people with mighty supernatural signs and wonders and miracles. And He's done so in order to display His divine glory, both in judgment and in deliverance, as well as in order to confirm the truthfulness of His Word and to confirm and authenticate His chosen messengers, His chosen prophets and apostles. And of course, obviously, some of these signs and wonders and miracles would include the supernatural plagues that God poured out 
upon the Egyptians, uh, the supernatural miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and the Exodus event, the prophetic miracles of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, and of course the astounding miracles that our Lord Jesus performed during his earthly ministry, which were signs of the presence of God's kingdom coming uh, to his people. And of course, uh, this uh, amazing, uh, the most amazing uh, miracle and sign and wonder was the physical bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead, as well as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost. Certainly, at periods of time in redemptive history, God has displayed himself in these mighty supernatural ways. But at other times in redemptive history, or most of the time, God has been very sparing with his miracles in that sense. Outside of these special periods of redemptive history, when God is giving his people new revelation, God's ordinary way of meeting with sinners has always been in the word and sacraments. Some might come to us today and ask the question, does your church have a signs and wonders ministry? What do you think? Does Grace OPC have a signs and wonders ministry? If I were asked that question, I would say, well, yes, but not in the way that you're probably thinking of. We do have a signs and wonders ministry. The signs and wonders ministry of this present post-apostolic new covenant age is the ordinary ministry of word and sacraments. That doesn't sound very impressive, very dazzling. Doesn't sound like it's something that if you advertise yourself, hey, we are an ordinary means of grace church. I actually remember a number of years ago uh, seeing a, a church brochure. I think one of our OPC churches down in the south uh, featured a brochure where it advertised itself as an ordinary means of grace church, which is a wonderful thing. But I'm, I'm thinking to myself, uh, who's going to be attracted by that? Well, it doesn't matter because it's the truth. Sadly, friends, many today, not only non-Christians, but even some who would profess themselves to be Christians, hunger for a more exciting spirituality. There is this tendency that we all have to look for the next big thing, to look for the next great move of God, to seek to find God in those mountaintop revival experiences or what have you. Many hunger for a power religion, a religion filled with supernatural signs and wonders and miracles. Even Jesus our Lord had this problem during his earthly ministry where folks would gravitate to him, not because they were willing to bow to him and follow him as his disciples, but because they wanted the bread that he multiplied, or they wanted, they wanted to partake of uh, and or witness these mighty things that Jesus was doing. This is why Christian movements like charismaticism and revivalism and Pentecostalism and also why pagan religions and movements like Wicca and the New Age movement seem to be steadily increasing in their adherence. But this shouldn't really surprise us, beloved, if we know the human heart. After all, the fallen human heart gravitates toward a theology of glory, a theology of dominion, a theology of power and victory and onwards and upwards, rather than towards a theology of of the ordinary means of grace, and especially 
the fallen human heart does not gravitate apart from the grace of God toward a theology of the cross. But beloved, as Christians who seek to ground our faith upon the word of God and who look to the cross work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we ought to respond to such manifestations of power religion by confessing along with the Apostle Paul that God's power is perfected in our weakness. The ultimate proof of this principle that God's power is perfected in weakness, what is the ultimate proof of that? It is Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. The ultimate proof of this is our crucified Lord who died for our sins in weakness but was raised from the dead in power for our justification. You know, there is no one more powerful and more glorious than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he could have called a legion of angels to come and rescue him from the cross. And as he hung on the cross, it appeared to the eyes of the world, it appeared to the eyes of flesh that Satan had won. It appeared that Satan and his world system had won, that the Son of God had been defeated, and that all was lost. But what was Jesus doing there as he hung on the cross? In the midst of that apparent weakness and powerlessness and awful suffering, Jesus was atoning for our sins and Jesus was also conquering the evil one. All of this is to say, once again, that the real signs and wonders ministry today in the church is the ministry of the word, the imperishable, living, and abiding word. The word as it is inscripturated in the Bible, the word as it is proclaimed in faithful preaching of the gospel, the word, the visible word as it is symbolized in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the eyes of uh, the world and in the eyes of uh, immature Christians, this may seem weak and powerless, but in reality, it is the very power of God. In reality, it is the imperishable word of God. Beloved, let us not be seeking the next big thing, the next big excitement, the next big move of God. Let us seek God where he's promised to meet us in the word and by his spirit. Let us through faith embrace that word, that good news of the gospel, and let us take it to heart and live in light of it. And let us be satisfied with the ministry that God has given to us. I'm reminded of, as I close uh, this evening, I'm reminded of that line in that famous hymn, what more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Have you taken refuge in Jesus, the Jesus revealed in the gospel, in the word of God. Believe and repent, embrace him, embrace his imperishable, abiding, living word. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and bless you that you have given to us an imperishable word. And though the world 
And the flesh and the devil seeks to destroy it, to undermine it. Your word is victorious. We thank you also, Lord, that this word is victorious even in the midst of our weakness. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to bear faithful testimony to this word. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that though you were crucified in weakness, yet you have been raised in power and that you come to us in your word to raise us to newness of life. We pray these things, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our time of worship this evening, let's rise and we'll sing together hymn 170, God in the Gospel of His Son, 170.